Brothers and sisters, it's a joy to see you and to be worshiping together with you this morning. Uh, let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord now. Leviticus 19 is our Old Testament reading this morning. Leviticus 19, we'll read verses 1 through 18. This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. And if you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it on the the next day. And if any remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, You shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a tale-bearer among your people. You shall take a stand, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In our New Testament text, Matthew 5, 31 through 48. Matthew 5, 31 to 48. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Thanks be to the Lord. For his word, let's pray now together. Lord, let us not be wise in our own eyes, but humble ourselves before you and before your holy word. We pray that we would be teachable, that our hearts would be uh, malleable, tender and soft, that you would shape us after the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are our father. We pray that we would bear the traits of true sons, even as our Lord Jesus did. Show us Christ now and show us what you require of us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. What does Jesus do with the law? What's he do with the requirements of the law that are there? We read them in the Old Testament. We read some of them just a few minutes ago from Leviticus what is Jesus going to do as he, as he brings his kingdom? Right, Things are changing. New things are happening. Is, does the law change? What, what impact is this going to have on the law? And we read this uh, earlier in the chapter, Matthew 5, last Lord's Day, as we considered this. Jesus says that he did not come to abrogate or destroy the law. He didn't come to toss it out and replace it. He came to fulfill it. And we said that that means that he didn't just come to um, protect and preserve the law, but he's saying that by fulfilling the law in, in himself, he is the one who is, is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. That everything in the Old Testament is about him. Every word of it pointing to him. That it's incomplete without him. So no, he doesn't abrogate it, doesn't destroy it. He's the whole point of the whole thing. All right, we said that it's sort of like, like getting married, right? right? There, there are certain rules that apply in your engagement. And then you get married. And getting married doesn't destroy the engagement. It fulfills the engagement. And so it is Christ comes. He comes as the king to bring in the kingdom of heaven. And so he fulfills the law. doesn't destroy it. But those parts of the Old Testament law that are about the ceremonies, right, the sacrificial system, he fulfills all that by being the sacrifice for our sins. 
Those parts of the law that are moral, the commands that are ongoing, that still apply, he fulfilled those by, by keeping them himself and then applying those to us. Now, as Jesus is, is um, preaching here in Matthew 5, uh, we've seen his, um, his, uh, his grace towards sinners, and he's spoken of this clearly, right? We began with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. And people are, people are hearing what he's saying and they're wondering, does this mean that he's abrogating the law? He's saying, no, it doesn't. And we have this question ourselves. Does the grace of God mean that I can sin uh, as I want to, as I please? He says, no. He came to fulfill the law. And he came to fulfill the law by keeping it. And he came to fulfill it by giving us a new heart that we might keep it too. Jesus' logic is this, if I'm your Lord and King, if I'm your Savior, Savior, then you must follow me in obedience. Right? If, if, if you're in my kingdom and God is your Father and you're His Son, you have to live in a way that's pleasing to Him and that reflects that. Right? Sometimes we can have this attitude towards God's law and towards, towards our holiness that it's really not a big deal. That it's, that it's sort of a side matter. As long as we're trusting in Christ as our Savior, we're all set and we can sort of just let sin go. But that's not what Jesus says. There is no place in His kingdom for a casual attitude towards personal holiness. He demands fastidious, earnest, careful obedience to every one of His commandments. Now, as Jesus is preaching that, I'm sure some of the Pharisees are saying to themselves, well, we have that. We've got that. Uh, we're, we're fastidious to obey the commands. Everyone knows this is the, the reputation the Pharisees have, that they're obsessed with the law of God. The problem, of course, is that they're obsessed with the law rather than God himself. Right? They see the law as this abstract thing that they have to keep, and it's not about pleasing their father. It's about pleasing themselves and, and, and being self-righteous. And it wasn't just the Pharisees that, that do this. It's ourselves that do this as well. Um, all of us have in our hearts an antinomian and a legalist. Antinomian is someone who's opposed to the law, anti-nomos, anti-law. Right? So we have in our hearts someone who's against the law, and at the same time we have in our hearts a legalist who's all about the law. Right? Because we want both these things. We want to, uh, we want to feel good about ourselves. Right? We want to feel like we're doing a good job and pat ourselves on the back. But we can't do that if we really take God's law seriously. So we, we, we create this, this other law, this surface-level law, and we think if we check off those boxes, then, uh, then we're all set. If we go to church and we don't uh, take the Lord's name in vain, and we don't swear, uh, we read our Bibles, and uh, we don't commit adultery, then we're, we're good. We're all set. Jesus says, though, as, he, as He's teaching these things here, that the law is a matter, fundamentally, of the heart. And that if we don't obey deep down from the core of who we are, we are not truly obeying the Lord at all. We saw this as he unpacked the commandments on murder and on adultery, and he does the same thing now as he works through some other commandments. He keeps on aiming at our hearts. God wants your heart and the obedience of your heart. As we look now at the, this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, we're continuing on then as Jesus applies the law to our hearts. And we're going to look at four different commandments that he, that he gives us, four things he addresses in the Sermon on the Mount here in the rest of chapter 5. He addresses divorce, oaths, 
retaliation, and love. And we're going to look at each of these, look at each of these in turn. So first, verses 31 to 32, Jesus addresses divorce. Um, we typically think of a divorce as, as, a, as a modern problem, right? The fact that you can get divorced for any reason whatsoever is something that's a, that's a, that's a modern problem, not something that people used to have to worry about. But it's not the case. Um, in Jesus' day, it was a serious problem. People would get divorced for any kinds of reasons. And uh, people were abusing this... Uh, uh, abusing it, uh, the Jews had taken what Deuteronomy 24 had given in the Old Testament as a as a provision. Right, God said, "Here, here, here, uh, here's a provision for divorce. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs from his house." Right, that, that's the provision God gave in the Old Testament for man's sinfulness and stubborn hearts. But the Jews had taken that provision and they turned it into a license. God gave that to them as, uh, uh, as a provision for, for their stubborn sin, but the Jews had made it into a, a license to sin as they pleased. The Jews said, oh, as long as you do the right paperwork, give her the certificate, you're all set. They debated what exactly, you know, the, 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 the reasons for a divorce that were legitimate were. Some of them said, if you burn the toast, you're done. Uh, if you burn the food, that's enough of a reason to divorce your wife. Um, so they were not taking God's law seriously. Right, they, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were twisting it, they were playing with it, they're doing everything they can to make sure they could, they could keep it themselves and feel good about themselves and be self-righteous before his law. And so Jesus says to them, stop playing games with his law. Right, stop twisting it so that it, that it suits your sinful desires. He says that he, he, elsewhere that God gave this provision for divorce and remarriage in the Old Testament because of their hardness of heart, but it was never the long-term plan. Um, in the beginning, right, God makes marriage between one man and one woman, and he made it permanent uh, as long as you both shall live. And, and yes, in the Old Testament, he gave this provision for hard hearts, but the, the training wheels of the Old Testament are coming off. Jesus is inaugurating the, the kingdom. He's writing the law in our hearts, and he says, now it's time uh, for this provision to go. The only grounds for divorce is sexual immorality, Jesus teaches. Now, you may know that over in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 16, Paul's going to add another reason legitimate reason for divorce, which is separation or abandonment. Um, what we see here is not a conflict in the Scripture's teaching, but we, we look at the whole testimony of Scripture. Jesus, is, uh, Jesus here is speaking very directly. He's speaking in a way that uh, he's trying to shock people awake to their sin, shock people away to the, awake to the way they're, they're abusing God's law. He's not trying to speak in a nuanced way or, or to give all the exceptions Right, he's speaking in a way to wake people up to their sinfulness before the Lord. So we look at this together with what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 7. But Jesus', Jesus point is this. If you divorce your wife for any flippant reason, anything beyond sexual immorality, then you're guilty. It's interesting. Christ doesn't lay all the blame, all the sin at the feet of the wife here. He says, you're both to blame. 
If you divorce your wife, send her away in this way, then you're guilty of committing adultery as well when she goes and remarries someone else. Loved ones, Jesus is showing us here how seriously the Lord takes our relationships with our spouses. He made marriage to be a picture of his relationship with the church, with his people. And when we, uh, when we, um, when we, when we uh, tear it apart with our sin, that uh, it's antithetical to what God has designed it to be. God hates divorce. It's an abomination to him. And this is so important to Christ Jesus that he brings it up here in Matthew 5. He's going to bring it up again in Matthew 19. And maybe this, maybe we say, well, you know what? Divorce, I'm not in danger of that. Um, that's, that's not something that I really need to worry about. But loved ones, divorce, sexual immorality that leads to it and the, the sins, the fracturing that leads to it are not the, 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 the work of a moment but the result of a long process of separation and disintegration in a marriage. So what we need to see here is that Christ is commanding us to pursue deep and and real unity in our marriages to make sure that we are pursuing these things in obedience to Him. So there is no room at all for divorce. That's the first thing Christ addresses. Then He addresses oaths in verses 33 to 37. He references Leviticus 19 here. He says, You shall not swear by my name falsely. That's what the law of God says in the Old Testament. Don't swear by my name falsely. Jesus says, Well, actually, don't swear at all. What are we supposed to make of this? You see, right, he said a few moments ago, I'm not, contra- I'm not, I'm not uh, destroying the law, I'm fulfilling the law, but now he comes and he says, Scripture says, you shall not swear by my name falsely, but I'm saying, don't swear at all. Again, he's targeting an abuse that's been going on. All right, the people of Jesus' day read the Scriptures which say, don't swear by my name falsely, and they say, well, perhaps if I swear by heaven, or if I swear by the temple, or if I swear toward the temple, or on the temple, or by Jerusalem, or by the hairs of my own head, right? Maybe if I can swear by those things, make a promise on those things, and then it's not really binding. I'm not really swearing by God's name in that case. I'm not taking his name in vain. But Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. Heaven is the Lord's, earth is the Lord's, the temple is the Lord's, you're the Lord's, your head is the Lord's, he's sovereign over all of it. And so you take an oath on any of it, and it's an oath before him. And you break it, you're breaking a promise made before him. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's how disciples talk. That's how citizens of his kingdom talk. Sons of the Father. They, they reflect the Father by being truthful and honest, not saying one thing with their lips and another with their hearts. Loved ones, are you trustworthy? If you do something, I mean, if you, if you say you're going to do something, do you follow through with it? Our kids are good at keeping us accountable for this, aren't they? Uh, you, you tell your, your son or your daughter, we're going we're gonna to do this later, and they expect you to, to make good on that. Uh, one time, my brother-in-law was visiting with us, and he told one of my boys that he was going to take him fishing later. He didn't check with mom and dad about that. Um, and he didn't realize we had other plans later, and that was not going to be happening. Um, and, and later on, one of my sons, he, he finds out we're not going fishing after all. And he bursts into tears and he runs out of the room. But you said we were going to go fishing. Right? Our children expect us to make good on our word. And so does the Lord. 
He expects us. If we say we're going to do something, that we're going to do it. You don't need to take an oath or a promise or a vow. Our words should be good. That we're going to do what we say we're going to do. Even if it costs us something. Jesus cares about the way we speak before him. The third thing he addresses is retaliation or vengeance. Jesus here cites Exodus 21-24 about um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That if you, um, if you are fighting with someone, you strike them on the eye, they lose their eye, it's just for you to lose one of your eyes too, right? This is the system of justice God puts in place in the Old Testament. And God puts this system in place to curb vengeance and, re- and, and retaliation and also to give a fair and just punishment. Um, this is the way God designs the justice system in the Old Testament, so that it's fair and just. That if, if, if you injure someone, then, then you deserve to be injured in the same way. If you steal from someone, you deserve to have to lose that same thing as well. Now, as we, as we look at that in the Old Testament, the context is the civil courts. That this, is, this is God's law for the people in, in, the, in the judicial system. The trouble was... The people were taking that law designed to bring justice, uh, you know, in the civil courts, and they were taking that and making that the rule for their personal interactions with each other. If you hurt me, well, watch out, I'm going to hurt you. Or if you take this from me, I'm going to take the same from you. Do this to me, I'll do the same to you. Right? The rule for their relationships had become eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And Jesus is saying, that's not the way it is to go in my kingdom. That's not the way that you are supposed to, to behave before the Lord. He says that our attitudes towards others, our behavior towards others, is not to be determined by how they treat you, but by what God himself requires of you. He gives three examples of what he means. He says, if someone strikes you on the cheek... Turn the other cheek so they can strike you on that cheek as well. Jesus doesn't mean here we shouldn't defend ourselves if we're in, you know, in, in danger. Um, this, this slap on the cheek was not so much in a, a violent, it was a violent attack, but it's not, not something that's life-threatening. It's an insult, uh, a terrible insult in, um, in ancient Israel. It was uh, this backhanded slap to the face. It, 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 meant, uh, it was meant as an insult. And Jesus' point is, if someone's insulting you, don't respond in kind. That's what we're tempted to do, uh, to respond in the exact same way. Jesus says, don't. Don't spit out mean words in response. Don't get defensive. Be gracious when someone attacks you and insults you. Don't have a harsh temper and blow up in response. Don't uh, get angry and try to get back. Be long-suffering. Be patient. Be merciful. He gives another example. If someone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak too. If someone wants your shirt, give them your coat also. According to Old Testament law, your cloak was an inviolable right. Someone could take it out as a pledge, but they have to give it back before night time. Um, before nightfall, Exodus 22 lays this out, that if someone gave you their cloak as a pledge of something, you had to return it that same day. Jesus is telling his disciples, yes, that's your right. Your cloak is your right. But don't insist on your rights. Don't demand your rights. 
Instead of that, instead of, instead of uh, demanding what is rightfully yours, give, be generous, go over and above what's asked of you. Someone asks for your shirt, give them your coat too. They don't have a right to it. You do, but give that up for them. This is the, this is the heart disposition, the heart attitude that is supposed to characterize citizens of his kingdom and sons of his father. <clears throat> Third example he gives it's going the second mile. Um, this phrase is coming to English to mean go the second mile. Do more than what's asked. Or if someone asks you for something or expects you to do something, do more than that. Um, go above and beyond what is asked of you. But it had a very specific meaning in Israel's, uh, in the context here in ancient Israel. Under Roman law, the Jews were required that if, if a Roman soldier asked them to carry his burden for him, the Jews were required by law to do it for a mile. Um, after that mile, they couldn't be required to do more. That was all the law required. That was their right. One mile, no more. Um, imagine how inconvenient this would be. Right? You're walking through Jerusalem. You've got some important stuff going on. You've got a lot to do today. You're behind in your work already. And you're, it's hot and dusty out. And, and you're going in, in this particular direction. And then this Roman centurion comes along and he says, I need you to carry my bag. It's heavy, it's uncomfortable, it's kind of embarrassing and humiliating, and it's interrupting your whole day and throwing everything off, and he wants you to go a mile in the direction you just came from, backtrack. It's going to mess up your whole day. But it's, you know, that's the law, so you do it, one mile. But you're thinking the whole time, I'm not going one step more, right? But, but Jesus says, go another mile. Embrace twice the inconvenience. Right? Don't insist on your rights. Do more. Be generous. Give more. Right? You can think of it. Imagine you're, in our context, you're driving to Portland. You've got an errand to go to do. You're driving to Portland. And um, you get a phone call. And it's from someone who kind of rubs you the wrong way. They always seem to ask you for things and never seem to offer anything. And uh, they're asking you to come help them out with something. And you're almost to Portland. Right? And, they, and, and, and they, they want you to turn around and drive all the way back and, and, and forget your plans for the day and, and come help them out. And they're probably going to hardly say thank you. What are you going to feel? What are you going to want to do? What are you going to be thinking? What's your heart's attitude towards that person going to be? Are you going to, 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 to say to yourself, well, my time's important and the gas is expensive and I just don't, I'm not going to do this today. Or are you going to say, I'm going to, right, the Lord Jesus commands me to go the second mile, to do twice as much as, I, as, as is expected of me and demanded of me, not to insist on my rights, give up my time, give up my, my, my resources and my, my own uh, agenda even. Jesus takes these three examples and he wraps them up in verse 42. He says, give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. The one who asks from you, give. Don't turn away. We're so curved in on ourselves. Right? Our sin contracts us. And, and we're, we, we just, we, we, we're navel gazers. We're staring at ourselves and our interests and our desires and our wants and our problems. Not others. Even on the outside, when we're being kind and polite to others, right? what's our heart doing? Is it really doing it out of love for others or just because it's what's polite, it's what's expected? And, um, you know. But loved ones, Jesus demands a, a different heart. He, he wants us to have entirely different attitudes from this. 
right? He demands a constant consideration of what other people need and how we can serve others. A life not directed towards what we can get for ourselves, but we can give towards others. And not responding to others with, well, what do they deserve based on how they treat me? But what does God tell me to do for them? Right? Our attitude towards others should be determined not by how they treat us, but how God calls us to treat them. Your attitude towards your wife, towards your husband, should not be based on how your wife or your husband treats you, but on what God tells you your duty is to your husband or your wife. Your attitude and your behavior towards your children should not be based on how they treat you, how they honor or dishonor you, obey or disobey you, respect or disrespect you. Your attitude towards your children and your behavior towards your children needs to be based on what God tells you to do for them. Your attitude towards those in the church, your brothers and sisters here, those you like, those you don't get along with as well, not based on on their treatment of you, but on what God tells you your duty is towards them. Your attitude towards your neighbor, same thing, not based on how they treat you, but on what God tells you your duty is to them. This is hard, isn't it? It's impossible. I don't want to serve. I want to be served. But Jesus says, that's not the way it goes in my kingdom. As if this were not enough. He keeps on going. He addresses one more thing here. Our fourth and final uh, command that he gives us is to love our enemies. Just in case you thought he was really just talking about how we treat those who are nice to us and those that we like, he now says, no, this is for how you treat those who are um, mean to you, those who are your enemies, those who hate you. Um, Other Jewish teachers were saying, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and, and hate your enemy. Right, the Old Testament nowhere says it's okay to hate your enemy, um, but um, it, it, it's, it commands love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say hate your enemies. That's a nice escape clause that the, um, some of the Jewish teachers had added on to it, right? Love those who love you, but don't worry about loving those who are your enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. But it's not enough, he says, everyone, everyone loves those who love them. Everyone's kind to those who's kind to them. The tax collectors, the Gentiles, right? right? No matter how sinful and despised someone is, they, they still generally like the people who like them. And they're nice to the people who are nice to them. Right? That's, that's basic. Everyone does that. He says, but you are to be different. You're to, you're to be like me. You're to be like your heavenly father. You're to love those who hate you. That's what makes Christians and that's what should make those in Christ's kingdom stand out from the world. Do you love those who hate you? When someone hurts you or disappoints you or offends you or mistreats you or takes advantage of you or whatever, do you love them or do you try to get back at them? Where does the grace for this come from? This is an impossible thing. Right? How, how, do we, how do we do this? It's only God who can enable us to do this. There's a wonderful illustration of this, a powerful illustration of this in the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Many of you probably know this story, of course. Corey Ten Boom has been, was placed in a Nazi concentration camp because of her work um, hiding Jews and helping them escape 
uh, during World War II. And uh, eventually she's caught, taken to a concentration camp. She survives that experience. But later on, after, after that, uh, after the war's over, she's out and she's, she's giving talks and speaking about the power of God's grace uh, to give hope and, and the power of forgiveness. Um, but then at one of these talks, she goes to a church and she's giving a talk and uh, she sees and she meets afterwards in the back of the church a guy who was a German guard at one of those concentration camps. In fact, someone she recognized from her time in the concentration camp. And she could remember he was right there and saw everything. He was abusing and hating and, and he, he was an enemy. And she says this, he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. He said, how grateful I am for your message to think that as you say, Christ has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered it's not on our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on him. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. This is exactly what Jesus is telling us here. Love your enemies. Why? Because this is what your heavenly father does. He loves those who hate him and curse him and blaspheme him. He sends the sun, he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust alike. He has grace and kindness and mercy towards sinners. So to love your enemies is to be imitating God himself. Jesus draws our attention to the Heavenly Father here. Um, this is going to be an important theme for him as he keeps on going in, in the Sermon on the Mount, this theme that God is our Father. And, and he's, going to, he's going to bring this out more in chapter 6, where we're going, which we're going to see. But he, he's pointing us to, to, to how the Father loves those who hate him. I think, think about how, the, how does the Father love those who hate him? How does he love his enemies? The whole story of the Bible is the story of God loving those who hate him, right? The, the, the story of his, of his common grace, not giving the wicked what they deserve, sunshine, rain, food, plenty, things to enjoy, and also not giving sinners uh, the, the, the full wrath they deserve by, by showing them grace and bringing them into his family and saving them from their sins. Right? His love pursues his people all through the pages of Scripture. As the Israelites rebel against him over and over, he keeps on going after them, extending them his grace and his love and bringing them back to himself. This isn't just how the Father is. This is also how the Son, our Lord Jesus, is, isn't it? Right? His life is a reflection of his Father's life. And he comes to <clears throat> lay down his life for sinners 
As he's suffering on the cross, what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, he's, and then he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He says to the criminal who was just before cursing and insulting him, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's gracious towards sinners. He goes after Saul of Tarsus. Saul, Saul's on the Damascus Road, an enemy of Christ, persecuting Christ. He just oversaw Stephen's uh, murder, and now he's going to this other city to drag off men and women to, to prison. Jesus goes after him, to this enemy of his. And he says, you are going to be mine. I, I claim you for myself. I'm going to show you mercy and grace and kindness and uh, turn, turn your life completely around. This is our Lord Jesus' heart, too. First Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Loved ones, isn't that how the Father and the Son have both loved you? Right? Aren't, aren't, weren't you God's enemy? Weren't you a God-hater? Haven't you doubted Him? Haven't you broken His commandments? Haven't you made promises to Him and then not kept them? Yet He gives you a sunrise every morning. He gives you the breath in your lungs every day. Right? Though, you, though you use that breath to curse Him, He still gives it to you. He gives you strength. He gives you food to eat and to enjoy. He gives you friendships to, to encourage you. And even more than that, He gives you the Lord Jesus Christ. And He gives you saving faith and He gives you the grace of the Gospel. And He, he gives you His Son's righteousness and His Holy Spirit to live within you. And He's given you all this out of His love for you. And then He says, Now you also... Love your enemies. Right, I've claimed you for myself. You were a sinner, an enemy of God, and I made you, I made you my own. Now go and, 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 and do likewise. Now you go and you, uh, you, you love those who hate you and bless those who curse you. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's a staggering and an impossible command. And it drives us to the cross. It drives us to Christ and His sufficiency for us. He's the only one who did this. And we need His grace, and we need uh, the forgiveness of our sins that's found in Him, and we need His righteousness to cover us. And then we also need, then, His grace to fill us so we can go and, with faltering steps, but true, keep His commandments and learn slowly but surely how to love our enemies. The only gas that will, that will, that will, uh, that will run the engines of our hearts to do this, love our enemies, is, is when we know and taste and experience the love of God for us when we were enemies of Him. So, loved ones, heed Christ's word here. Uh, don't stand on your rights. Don't insist on your privileges. Don't insist on what belongs to you. But go and, and give up for others and serve and sacrifice for others. Uh, what the Lord wants here is a heart that is devoted to Him all the way down. And keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and on your Heavenly Father. And fill your heart up with uh, the love that He has for you. Love because He first loved you. And then go give yourself in obedience to every one of His commandments. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank You for Your love for sinners, Your love for us. We pray that you would, by your grace, so fill us with a sense of that love that we would learn to love even our enemies and that we would, that we would love you with, with, a, with a deep 
uh, heart level loyalty that, uh, that we might desire to obey all your commandments and walk before you in everything to please you, our Heavenly Father. Give us grace, we pray, uh, for we need it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.